What's up, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 180. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the living legend, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Uh, apologies to our random selection of Russian bot listeners. Uh, about last week's show, we had to put it off because I had a very nasty cold, which mm-hmm. I'm still suffering the... Uh, the tail end effects of so i will apologize in advance for uh my nasal sounding voice tonight or if i cough Look, or... but when when the money maker is uh, is in need of a break then we have to do that it's true uh, I've, I've also taken the executive decision to yet again relocate electric fried brain studios uh electric, it was the electric ham sandwich studios electric whatever ham we're sa- calling it the studio is going to be relocating again in the next couple of months so that will make, uh, I think, five different venues in the last five years. So <laughs> that's an exciting feature for our audience to keep their <laughs> eyes on um, every month, every couple of years. Like, where are they now? We, we, we should say, like, where in the world is Armchair Producers? <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty much. It's getting that way. Um, I've had to dip my toe into the uh, glorious world of rentals in the city uh, in the middle of arguably the worst rental crisis in living memory mm-hmm. and let me tell you right now it wasn't fun well it wasn't fun let, I, I i had my fair share of moving around a lot when i lived in london and yeah that anyone who willingly moves as much as that They've got something wrong with them. It's not a nice experience whatsoever. Not a, not a single tiny piece of it. If you like going in and seeing places, just pretend you're really rich and go to the really nice ones. That's, that's how you get that fantasy fulfilled. And you don't have to... <laughs> I may or may I have yet. done that for some penthouse apartments in Canary Wharf. Mm. Well, what's the difference between this apartment then a train, which I could also afford. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, it's, it's no, I, I enjoyed looking at real estate. It's a bit of an strain obsession, but uh, I don't looking enjoy getting up at eight o'clock in the morning to look at eight different places on a Saturday. Um, so, <clears throat> fortunately, it looks like that phase is over, and the next phase begins, which is the annual packing of the boxes. Uh, so, over the coming weeks, there might be less stuff behind me as things move off, but um. Uh, that'll be an exciting Emma Spotto for those who tune in for the live stream or watch it on Catch Up on Twitch or the YouTubes or the Facebook. Um, anyway, but enough about me. Uh, what do you think of me? Um, <laughs> well, I already said that you're the man, the myth, and the living legend, and I say that wholeheartedly every time. But people don't want to know my opinions of you. They know my opinions of you. They want to know about our movies of the week. Chain movie of the week it was delayed because someone had a little bit of a dicky throat. <laughs> no. Everyone wants to know about the most up-to-date movie that we have ever done for the chain movie. It's the 2001 Henry Selleck, Brendan Fraser movie, Monkey Bone. Yes. We will also be talking about Jordan Peele's latest uh, jam. Nope. No, we will. We will be talking about his latest movie. Oh, I see what you're doing. It's a funny joke. Uh, yeah, it's chortle. <laughs> um, we shall also be uh, taking a look at something a little artier. Mm. 
that is the uh, Indie Darling After Sun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Starring absolutely no one I've ever heard of before. No, but um, the, uh, the the main guy, um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, the guy who played Callum, there's a couple of people who have said, oh, he'd make a great James Bond. It's like, hmm, James Bond with a Scottish accent that isn't Sean Connery. Paul Mescal, I think. That's it, is. yeah. I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted James Bond to look like a like a lad, yeah. But I, I feel like if they were to do that, it would fall dangerously close to Kingsman. Or what was that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen Bond piss take? Welcome to Bletchley or whatever it was. Oh, um, yeah, that one. Anyway, that, that one, the one that wasn't very good. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> And of course, we um, we haven't discussed about this, but we may very well be able to uh, drop in on binge browse burn. Binge browse burn. Burn. Um, speaking of James Bond, did you read that they are, uh, Amazon are doing a James Bond reality show starring Brian Cox? Yeah, I I saw the headline. I didn't read it because it's like mm, I I don't know what that show is. And I don't think I want it. <laughs> Nobody who asked him, who in the genius at the top of a tree that thought James Bond reality TV boom match made in heaven. That's going to be great. What Brian Cox is doing it? Well, fuck knows. He, I mean, he'd be a, he'd be great in the actual James Bond. Yeah, he uh, good like, as a bad guy or a, 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 a new M or something like that. Because he was great in the um, the Bourne films, of course, that he yes. played in uh, of Treadstone and stuff like yeah. that. But um, perfect fit for actual James Bond. But for I don't know what's up with that. I know, um, this is part of because um, Amazon paid quite a lot of money MGM for MGM, and they that was one of the things that they um, Eon Productions, who <clears throat> have shepherded all of the Bond movies for since inception. Um, has been of yeah we have to make these movies but there's more to this brand than just a, a movie every five or six years we could do a tv show and all of this stuff and they were throwing around all these weird ideas i didn't realize that a reality show was gonna become a reality while we're speaking random goss before we get on for film of the week have you seen the trailer for the flash the new trailer i have and my goodness this is um this doesn't necessarily seem much like a Flash movie and more like a wet dream Justice League because have you heard the rumour of one of the cameos in the movie? Please tell me. One Nicolas Cage oh. as the abandoned Superman Lives Project variation. That would... People would lose their shit about that. Yeah. That would be... Um, well, we'd see it, but you're right. They're not really selling. It's like, oh, it's Batman's in this movie. Yeah, it's the last Batman movie, which I'm okay with because yeah. the last Batman movie wasn't very good. Uh, I'm sorry, I know people like Batman. It was fine. It was overly long and took itself way too seriously, but it was fine. But like, you know, I'm like, I just hope that they give Keaton something to do more than member berries. Like, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I see what you're doing, and I'm fine with it. If it's like in the last one, you did the, I'm Batman, you know, yeah. and you're like, come on, can we do something other than like callbacks? Like, I'm, yeah, you know, like I, I like the idea that he's in it, and obviously Affleck's in it as well. Mm -hmm. 
um and supergirls in it and stuff and i don't know maybe cattle i don't know um but uh michael shannon's in it i don't know i think it looks okay yeah it looks it looks interesting yeah it, look, uh, it looks okay. like um it looks like a better justice league movie trailer than the justice league movie trailers that came out for either the joss whedon version or the zack schneider version <clears throat> because there is some element of brevity to it um but also again it's seems to still be kind of stuck in the quadmire of zack snyder's gritty dark brooding no superheroes cannot smile kind of attitude everything's like I, I must say though like when you watch this and you're like oh god we're not looking at zod destroy metropolis again are we how many different films have kicked off or been centered around zod destroying metropolis as a as a sort of a central point it's at least the best three or four of them now thing was for batman v superman and bruce wayne just running into it that was that was awesome that, that was awesome. that was kind of rad yeah but you're kind of like oh this again the man of steel wasn't good enough for this <laughs> it really wasn't that good um you just don't get it man okay i'm i'm interested i can't wait to see it um maybe andy machete is the man they needed all along right. when big and names couldn't do the job mm -hmm. you know um but um and uh, it is very interesting that they focus so little on ezra miller um it's not and strange considering the i'm being sarcastic <laughs> but what a fascinating thing this will be yeah. if this is an absolute laid out smackdown smash hit yeah if this makes a billion billion and a half yeah you know at the box office what the fuck do you do yeah i mean it, i don't know if any of the charges have stuck against ezra miller i haven't looked into it so they could kind of just kind of go la 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 innocent until proven guilty la 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 if they really want to if the money keeps going cha-ching but at the same time it's not a so look the uh, the Justin Royland defense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or the or, or the, the new Jonathan Majors defense that the MCU is currently working on. We, yeah, we we will see how that one rolls out. I'm I'm disappointed in that. I love him as an actor. Um it's disappointing because I think he could he's got he, he's someone who has the acting chops to be able to deliver a unique variation of the character. We saw some little elements of that through Quantumanium and Loki and the teaser at the end for Loki season two. But oh boy, talk about if if that fit hits the Shan any worse, they have got one hell of a problem because they've told it's everyone all... what the name of the big Avengers movie is, and it's the Kang Dynasty. You gotta recast. That's what you gotta do. Uh, you show what you've shot and then you recast. Yeah, I mean Damn. But we've deviated for long enough. We deviated. This is our gossip. We don't do gossip much, but I thought it was some interesting goss there. Let's talk yeah. about mm, 2001's Monkey Bone. This was my this pick. Was, and what, what was it about this pick that made you want to take a look? I had not seen it before. Um, I remember when it came out, um, there was talk of it being a bit too raunchy and a bit too weird. And... Um, 
I like. I'm trying to take the the, the chain movie as an opportunity not only to go and see, uh, to see quintessential classics or fantastic Oscar movies or anything like that, but just those unusual things that I'm generally a big fan of Henry Selleck and Brendan Fraser. So this was kind of a, a piece out of the jigsaw that fit nicely in there. And why not take this opportunity? And it's got some interesting potential kind of deviation spots for, for to go from for, for the next link as well. And there were a lot of obvious choices that could go from last uh, last time's Grindhouse. This was following Rose McGowan to a much lesser known role than she's had, I suppose is a, a diplomatic way of putting it. So I thought, why not? Opportunity. It's an interesting film. Yeah. Not a, not a good film. No. But an interesting one. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting collection of ideas mm-hmm. that... I would normally say something like in in better hands could have been you know molded into something quite compelling mm. but the hands that were in were in henry Selleck's, as you sort of said for those who don't know henry Selleck is uh most famous for actually directing nightmare before christmas uh-huh. yes tim burton was the producer and yeah. i think he wrote it um and obviously a, a, a creative force but he was not the director it was henry Selleck. yes he also directed uh, Coraline, which is a strange and interesting and disturbing film. He directed James and the Giant Peach, which we talked about a few months ago, mm-hmm. which I think was one of his lesser successful films. Definitely. But um, Henry Selleck is a, a, a steady pair of hands when it comes to animation. Yes. Um, and the film seems to take a – it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Roger Rabbit. Uh, yeah, it was almost in, almost as if so like Roger Rabbit meets Nightmare Before Christmas through the lens of Terry Gillingham. As it was a darker, raunchier story mm-hmm. than um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Of course, that was about when we were 13, 14 years before this. Animation and CGI come a long way since then. So yeah. having animated and live cast on the screen at the same time, not quite the... Uh, incredible technical achievement it was in the late 80s yeah um so it had that angle i believe for, for the graphic novel it's based on written by kaja blackley yeah uh <laughs> are we pronouncing that wrong um he's a darker tone as well but yeah. it, it's about people with button eyes and i'm like henry Selleck took that idea and ran with it well um, i do think that was neil gaiman's in, in Coraline at the very least um, so uh, I believe it's a darker, more sinister source material, which I think may have been the original plan mm. behind this. Um, but it sounds like they got scared off from doing that. Yeah. And we kind of ended up with something that was not quite one thing and not quite the other thing. It was kind of didn't know exactly which yeah. which of its masters to play up to. Was it Were we going for a straight-ahead family film like Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Or are we going for something sort of quirkier and darker, which is kind of where Coraline lived? Yeah. And The Nightmare Before Christmas to a lesser extent. Yeah. And because it didn't really seem to know which way to swing, it just kind of ended up being neither. Yeah. Now, storyline for those who do not know. In a coma, Stu Miley, a cartoonist who created a comic book strip called Monkey Bone, which features a rascal monkey, he finds himself trapped within his own underground creation 
and must find a way to get back while racing against his popular but treacherous character, Monkey Bone. Naturally, Monkey Bone himself is there, and he and Stu quickly fight, start fighting like cats and dogs. When Stu realizes that his sister, due to a pact they once made, is preparing to pull the plug on him, Stu makes a deal with um, Hypnos, the god of sleep, to help him steal a golden ticket from death themselves. But when Monkey Bone takes over Stu's body and escapes to wreak havoc on the real world, Stu has to find a way to stop him before his sister pulls the plug on reality forever. Um, Mostly? The, sorry. Most? Yeah, a, <laughs> I was going to say, the comic book is based on a comic book called Darktown. Mm. Uh, it was written by Kaja Blakely, illustrated by Vanessa Chong, and published by Mad Monkey Press. Mm -hmm. The journey from comic to film was initiated by a fan of a comic book and member of a San Francisco animation community mm -hmm. who, without Blackie's, Blackley's knowledge, passed the copy of Darktown onto one of Selleck's producers. Selleck fell in love with a book and vigorously pursued the rights. In a letter, he wrote, I never felt any project was close to my sensibilities in this one. The initial intention was to stay true to the source material, which can be seen in early designs with Selleck's company, Twitching Image. However, as the project developed, it developed into Monkey Bone. Mm. Um, and yes, it's supposed to be a much darker source material. Uh, but, um, I, I liked the version of hell or is it the afterlife? I'm not exactly sure yeah. where he's supposed to be. The coma world. Yep. Um, that he wants, uh, when, uh, the main character, I forgot his name. Sorry. Stu. Uh, Stu, Stu's characters in a coma mm. is interesting and the character design is fascinating and it evokes nightmare for christmas very very strongly yeah as as well as um damn what was it i was thinking of just now uh i i, I got a kind of vibe of early terry gillingham stuff with the, the the kind of the body suits and things like that that were happening in there and just the the fact that it seems to be all in Stu's mind that that feels like a, a budgeted monty python afterbirth thought idea um the methodology of launching people back into life was yeah. interesting. Try a rocket chair thing. Um, uh, beyond that, I enjoyed watching Dave Foley as uh, Stu's uh, manager. Yeah, he I, plays Herb. I wasn't ex expecting the other guy from Night of the Roxbury to be. That's Chris Catan. Yeah, that's the same guy. Dave Foley. No, Dave Foley and Chris Catan are different people. Uh, Oh, sorry. Yes, Herb. Yes. Um, I was thinking of organ donor stew. Yeah, that was amusing as yeah. well. So um, basically Monkey Bone and Stu managed the full death, I guess. Whoopi uh, played, by, played by Whoopi Goldberg in a role I don't think really suits Whoopi at all. Um, yeah, it's I think it, a weird... Apparently originally it was going to be Nicolas Cage was going to play Brendan Fraser's role, and Christopher Walken was uh, up for the role played by Whoopi Goldberg. And you're like, okay, I can see that working. Um, weird combination. How have we not had that? Um, but and so anyway, they, they fool Whoopi Goldberg, and then Whoopi Goldberg uh, by allows allowing thereby allowing Monkey Bone to escape into Stu's body, and seeing that living cartoon character that Brendan Fraser was so good at doing early in his career was was moderately enjoyable, but 
mostly kind of gross, frankly. Um, I, I don't know, very, very sleazy I don't, character. And, and, and I don't know that someone as likable as Brendan Fraser can do sleazy. He can't, especially at that point in his career. He's he's a very, especially in his young career, he was a very physical character. You think of George of the Jungle, you think of this. Encino Man. Encino Man. Um, even going into things like The Mummy, he was very determined to do a lot of his own stunts, and things, hence why he has had so many health problems, because it took its toll on his body. Um, but he's always likable. And he's he's char- he's got a natural charm to him. So seeing him as this kind of sex obsessed pervert sleaze bag, it was just like mm, no, maybe maybe they're purposely trying to do it so that it does feel uncomfortable and wrong and bad. But in I fact, think some people much it's... time on that to. <sighs> Yeah. If you look at Nicholas Cage, for example, if we look at something like Face Off, where he played two different types of characters yeah. in the one film, I mean, I mean, Nicholas Cage can do anything when he's actually on mm. and trying and working hard mm. and not phoning it in. I noticed a story pop out recently about him talking about his his crappy roles recently, and he's like, oh, "I never find it in the light." Really. Really, I've seen some of those films, mate. Um, I saw that Christian Left Behind film. You phoned that one in, you know. You emailed that one in, mate. Um, but Facts. he could pull that. He could pull that shit off. Where he could go, mm. you know, crazy, and you know, from from you know, think of his character in um, The Rock. You almost that Dudley Do Right kind of, yeah, you know, character. Whereas he's plays the wacky character you know the, the evil character in um bad. in uh in, in face off you know he can be completely crazy really well and i think someone like that might have worked really well it's a bit like seeing tom hanks trying to play tom hanks trying to play sleazy and evil you're like sorry yeah. no yeah not, i mean uh, come on mr mr rogers could never play a bad guy unless you're brian cranston um true so <laughs> I don't know. I really bought that, and maybe a different actor might have worked. That I kind of enjoyed, though. I remember we remember now what a great physical actor he was yeah. at his prime. Even if the sleaze bag character didn't really come off a hundred percent in this. Um, you mentioned John to um, Chris Kattan uh, at a later point to escape his coma world. He bargains with death to be allowed to go back and try and you know <laughs> prevent his body from having you know, the, uh, the, uh, from being misused by monkey bone. Mm. Um, and he is put back into the, uh, into the body of a deceased, uh, gymnast <laughs> who had broke their neck in a, in a fall, um, played very well by Chris Kattan. And, and see, I, I got to give a heads up. We're not going to night at the rocks free last next week, but it took an immense amount of personal control not to go to night of the rocks because I fucking love that movie. And Chris Kattan's really fucking funny. And he's, again, his physical comedy mm. in this is fantastic because he's got a broken neck. So yeah. his, his neck just kind of wobbling around and he ended up sticking a ruler down the back of his shirt and putting duct tape around it to keep his... See, from the moment he springs up, he basically doesn't stop moving and he just swings his whole body around. And 
he's running and taping his up his stomach where they were <laughs> where Bob Odenkirk was taking corpses, following him around town. In other words, there's a, is a there's a team of um surgeons who want who who uh Chris Kitan's character was to be an organ donor. They want his organs, so they're following him around, waiting for the organs to fall out so that they can put them in coolers and go and transplant them. That was stupid, stupid, but amusing. Um, but Chris Kitan just disappeared under the under the waves, and you don't see him doing much, but he was a, a solid, uh, yeah. talented physical comedian. He was funny as Bob Odenkirk, very young Bob Odenkirk is amusing to yeah. see pop up here. So you can see here there's bits and pieces. The animation looks pretty good. I was talking about Dave Foley earlier. If you don't know who Dave Foley is, Dave Foley is a comedy legend. Mm -hmm. um, he, of course, of um, Kids in the Hall, which is uh, Canadian comedy royalty. If you don't know about Kids in the Hall, I recommend uh, uh, I Google it. he did the voice of Flick in A Bug's Life. Um, so there's always little pieces here and there. As I was sort of saying, the animation of Monkey Bone is pretty good. The animation of yep. the... A lot of the characters in in, in the, the world, the coma world, look creepy and gross and fantastic yep. and interesting. Uh, even uh, our link, Miss Rose McGowan, as the overly sexualized Miss Kitty, uh, is pretty good. None yeah. of this actually congeals into a cohesive film, though. It's all over the shop. Yeah, even even some single characters like. Um... Uh, you had uh, what, what was it? Uh, Stu's sister, um, played by Megan Malane, uh, Malay, Malali. Um, she's like just hanging out beside the, the bedroom window. She's so keen to just unplug it. It's like okay, that's that's kind of weird. I, I think I get what you're trying to do as comedy, but at the same time, I don't think it's working. <laughs> It, it just it just seemed felt like the filmmaker throwing everything he possibly could at the screen mm -hmm. and seeing what stuck. But it, it, the difference here is it's not like if we were watching a really shit movie, you know, like a genuinely awful movie, it's someone who no talent. All of that stuff if we're at the screen would be terrible. The difference mm. here is it's actually pretty good, but or not pretty good. It's it's got promise. It's got potential. Yeah. Some yeah. of it works. And yeah. you can you can appreciate some of the quality of what he's doing, but like you're like none of this makes sense. It's like serving me eggs with marmalade plus chili paste. You know, it's just like these are all fine ingredients by themselves, but put them in together. You no, know, mm -hmm. nobody wants that. <laughs> so and that's just didn't ever. I don't know about studio interference, you know, or he just didn't know a film. I just don't think this film had an identity. I don't think they knew what they were making when they started. And that's what they ended up doing. They ended up doing something it steals neither either or. It's just mm. is. And we haven't mentioned one of the writers of this is Sam Hamm, who famously wrote Batman and Batman Returns. So well, it, Batman Returns isn't a very good film. So, you know, that's one oh, for two. Sacrilege. I know that film's received a little bit of a uh, historical revisionism lately of people going, well, you know, actually, it's quite good. I'm like, no, I saw it at the cinema a couple of years ago. It's not good. It really makes absolutely no sense. Um, Does it? it see, obviously, I'm guessing he's a friend or a colleague or someone that um, Tim, knew Tim Burton or liked to work with Tim Burton because 
those of course were the two Burton Batman films. Yeah. Um, and from there, he ended up doing a film like this with a, a fellow collaborator of, mm-hmm. of Burton's. Um, he has done sweet fuck all since then. He okay. has not written one feature since that, since Monkey Bone. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there was, it wasn't terrible. I just feel like, like looking at it, it's, it's, it's just such a hodgepodge. And there's elements of the production design, which is Tim Burton-esque or Beetlejuice. There's elements of it, the, the idea of this kind of grungy, almost like um, shantytown-esque place where people in comas go until they're they either die or they wake up again. It's a it's a cool concept, but that's a little bit more something that I would expect someone like Terry Gillingham to work with. Or, and but then at the same time, you've got Brendan Fraser in there who has got quite a history of working with animation. Like he was um, probably not too long after this, he was in uh, the Looney Tunes movie, and. He was in the first Journey to the Center of the Earth movie, which is one of the first big movies to use Jim Cameron's 3D cameras when they filmed it. It was a test bed for that before Avatar came out. He is not shied away from anything like that, but just it just doesn't work here. You are correct. Looney Tunes back in action was two years after this. Yeah. Before this, of course, he was in a Sinbad movie. Um, if you, No one remembers the Sinbad movie. He may he played what Sinbad. Bread of really? I... Yes, along with Mark Hamill of all people. Jesus. Okay. Um, Ooh, not... is, the, is this a, a nod to where you're taking me next? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, don't. no. I didn't know this film existed. Um, we are not following Brendan Fraser. Um, okay. But you're right. He, he was not averse to doing a bit of animation. Um, and this is this is peak Brendan Fraser. The actually height of his powers, and uh, it's it's a shame that this didn't come together because I think they had something here. Mm. I just think they needed to pick a different lane. They yeah, pick a lane, and I think the lane needed to be the dark lane because I think when Henry Selleck tried to do something family friendly in um, James and Giant Peach, it didn't work. I, yeah. I think his I think his his sensibility suits a darker tone film. Yeah, I, I feel like his his success does lie in some of his cynicism, I think, and that that gloomier outlook, um, almost like Hans Christian Andersen style of fairy tale, where it's like, yeah, not everyone's going to survive. Sorry. And that's good, because that's something that we do need in the the, the color palette that is cinema. This is this this is a mess. A shameful mess. <laughs> a damn shame. It had promise, but it didn't nail the landing. Yeah. So the keys are yours, good sir. Where are you taking? I'm, I am going to do the opposite of what George is doing, which is George is admirably taking us to some strange and unusual places. Right. Um, where, where, you know, he's lifting cinematic rocks in the garden and looking at what murky little things lie beneath them. <laughs> Keep it standing up here, people. Um, and I am going to follow John Turturro. 
Ah, uh, and we're going to get the Transformers then. Oh, you or you don't mess with Zohan. No, um, <laughs> we are going to though. Uh, we are going to actually one of those uh, acknowledged classics, masterpieces of cinema. Mm-hmm. This time around, um, mm-hmm. because a I've been wanting to watch this for a while. Again, mm-hmm. I saw this like twenty five years ago, so I don't remember much about it. But okay. it is an acknowledged masterpiece, and that is 1989's Do the Right Thing. Oh, yes. That is definitely a confirmed. Written and directed by Spike Lee. I think we've used Spike in the past, so that mine might be closed for you, but there should yeah, be a reason. Re- uh, uh, yeah, because we had him with Black Klansman and Inside, Inside Man. Man. But yeah. I think there's a few ways out. This also shares Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, I could have used either one. Uh, Danny Aiello was in a lot of films. Ozzy Davis, um, uh, Jamiel Jackson, of course, Rosie Perez, mm-hmm. um, Ozzy, uh, Ozzy Davis, I think, if you really want to go to something super, super old school, was in. Yeah, but don't tell me, don't tell me options are where to go. That, that's, that's for me, sir. That's for him. I'm just sort of providing commentary that unlike sometimes, this isn't a death machine type situation. Where we need to, you know, rely on um, some fairly. Yeah, what was the guy's name again? Um, whoever Grimmer Wormtongue was in the. Uh, Lord of, uh, no, not um, Stephen Dorff. Dorff. The Brad Dourif. I can't remember. Um, anyway, this is uh, on the hottest day of the year Brad on the street in the Bedfield Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Everyone's hating bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. Potentially still as relevant as ever. Uh, and here we are, <laughs> thirty. Four years later. Um, so, uh, excellent. That's next week. I'm just having a quick look for you to see uh, where, I, find it. where one might find it. Because uh, you've got to think that that's that's on one of the thousand streaming services that we have. Uh, it's not available to stream, but you can rent it at Google, Microsoft, YouTube, Fetch, Apple TV, or the Amazons, if that's so how you feel. But it's widely, widely available. Um, and I, as I said, I haven't seen this for about 25 years, so mm-hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't watched this since... Actually, since 1996, I think. Yeah. That would have been about that. I watched it for my first year of cinema studies. Yeah. Um, and it was 1996. Um, they, they had screenings at 10 a.m. on a Monday because they understood film people. <laughs> Should right, we well, I'm move on? Going to that one. Yeah, that's going to be a, a very different kind of review, mm-hmm. Mr. And it'll be interesting to see how it holds up all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where should we go next? Do you want to talk about After Sun? Sure. Let's this talk is- about this i saw a trailer for this um when i went to the movies recently and i thought wow that looks pretty women talking i went and saw and i saw the trailer to this oh yeah this looks interesting sophie reflects on the shared joy and private melancholy of a holiday she took with her father 20 years earlier memories real and imagined fill the gaps between as she tries to reconcile her father she knew with a man she didn't this is directed by charlotte wells i think this might be her debut feature uh, uh yeah. film, yes. 
I don't think she's done much of anything we would short films just before this. As we sort of said earlier, our main stars are Paul Mescal as Callum and Frankie Carrillo, or Corio, uh, as Sophie. I grew up in Carrillo, so she's got a banging name, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> named after a very average suburb. Uh, this is, I think, her film debut. Yeah. Um, Paul Mescal, I don't know if he's big in Britain, but I haven't seen him in stuff here before. He's done uh, a few uh, previous things, uh, nothing yeah. that I've ever heard of. So um, I think it's it's certainly going to be the star maker for both of those uh, yes. actors. And those are really our, our main characters that the film revolves around. We have a few other people who come and go, none of whom are played by particularly notable actors. Um, this is a very, this is an interesting one in the sense it has a meta score of 95, a an audience score on IMDb of 7.7. 7, and mm -hmm. I really, really struggled with this one. Um, I found myself thoroughly, thoroughly bored at many points during this film. How did you go with it? Very similar, honestly. Um, I feel like it was overly long for one thing. Um, the messages that it was trying to, or the themes that it was trying to detail were foggy and they didn't serve themselves well where they sort of like randomly jumped back to older Sophie and then back where there was not really any context. It was like, oh, okay. Especially considering they, they were using the found footage style. That to me as a, as a narrative, that means that someone's watching it. And even in the very first um, video that we see where um, uh, Sophie is trying to interview Callum about what he was doing when he was 11, you can see a reflection in the TV that they're watching this found footage on. So it's like, okay, that was enough to to set the scene for me. You didn't need to jump back to Sophie and you didn't, I don't understand why they kept on going back to that disco, which the sequences went on for too long. There was too much darkness. There wasn't enough storytelling in there, except just seeing Callum occasionally looking euphoric in the dance sequence but at the same time it was sometimes it looked like it was almost in horrible physical pain and the the notion of her trying to reach her father in these sequences didn't come through for me i after we finished watching it i went through and read the wikipedia page it's like okay Hmm. I don't think this movie quite knows what it was trying to nail either, or it was really doing that quintessential kind of first feature thing of I've got a cool idea and I'm going to keep on hitting that red button to make my point, and it ends up causing a disservice. I think you've kind of nailed it there. So just again, Rotten Tomatoes, 96 Critic score, 81 audience score. Mm. Um, I think I missed a memo somewhere because I was like, I struggled a little bit initially. I guess maybe I, I was being pulled out of a film and almost confused at points in time. Like, hang, well, hang on a second, we're back with the old Sophie now. 
and she's gay, I guess, because she's mm. living with a woman in a romantic relationship, and then we're back into the story. And yeah, for it, example, um, there's a sequence towards the end of the movie where Sophie gets all the people on the tour bus to sing for he's a jolly good fellow to Callum and he just watches on semi-stoically uncomfortable and then we see a scene of Callum crying and in the Wikipedia when you read it it says it cuts to from the night before when he was uh, when she came home and he was naked it's like wait what they time jumped backwards a day for huh I thought that was a sequence where he was just not coping with being the center of attention or anything like that. It, there was nothing to suggest that it was going to the night before. And why would you? Why would it? It, it didn't make any sense. There's a point in time where he like he walks out of the apartment and you see him walking along the beach into the ocean, taking mm. his clothes off, which, I mean, maybe it's just misdirection. I thought it was a suicide attempt, frankly. Um, and then we see... Uh, you know, Sophie sleeping in the lobby before mm. being let in by the by the hotel staff. She's like, I, I I just struggled to know what was going on in this story. I mean, the thoughts of another problem here is there is no story. It's not like they went on a holiday together mm. and something happened or didn't happen, or there was some sort of event or some sort of revelation. And that was the dramatic, you know, core of a story and things progressed, you know, it's, it's a very untraditional film in that sense, mm-hmm. in the sense that there is no story. It's just stuff happening. It's basically watching somebody else's video from a holiday they went on 20 years ago. Who uh, emotional engagement with them. I did feel like um, between Sophie and Callum, I think that the actors did a good job of being a young father and daughter and they seem to have good chemistry, but that wasn't translated to the audience. So it's just like, okay, I'm watching complete strangers do quite a holiday in France, in Spain, 20 years ago. Yeah. There's no like, I didn't feel there was any setup for it. Like, I mean, Sophie had had a conversation with someone beforehand and then sat down and watched the movies. You're like, oh, you know, maybe I'm assuming her dad's dead in the future. Um, yeah. Like, there's no actual conversation, unless I missed something, because I was really bored and kind of tuned out. Frankly. It happens from time to time. It yeah. felt it was a long hour 42, let me tell you. Um, 42. I thought that was a two-hour movie. No. It was a long hour 42 and it's like, you know, like some context to what we were seeing here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess maybe it's fun. The idea is it's fun for you to figure it out as you're going along and like, you know, just to sort of for osmosis almost just pick up the nature of a relationship between his father and his daughter and what's mm-hmm. going on between them and uh, somehow the emotional resonance of what Sophie is feeling. I guess it's what old Sophie is feeling watching young Sophie and her dad, despite the fact we don't really see, I mean, apart from his weird flashbacks to the future, flash forwards, <laughs> uh, the future, you know, you don't see a lot of her and what her reactions are or what's going on with her. I I don't know. I, I didn't get this. Like, I, I just didn't get it. Like, I, I think you need to be super, super talented uh, and really, okay, I mean, really tight production and a really... Mm. It takes a lot of skill to tell a story 
in a film where there is no story. Yeah. You know, basically through, especially you mentioned earlier, through found footage where there's no context, no voiceover, no talking heads, no narration, no explanation. You just got to put the pieces together based on what you see. And now I can see the appeal of that personally. Like, mm-hmm. that sounds interesting. But I don't think Charlotte Wells has pulled it off here. I think maybe maybe if they had kind of framed it better, like the opening with the title sequences, the A24 and Tango and all that stuff, it's the sounds of uh, the mini DV cassette tapes being loaded and ejected and things like that. I almost feel like it would have been better to not have that and just have audio of adult Sophie and her partner having a conversation about how Sophie... Mm maybe suffering from depression and um, just something to just go, uh, you know, my, my dad dealt with this. Um, I remember what it was like as a kid. That's very, very kind of paint by numbers, but at least it gives us some context and going to the, the, the pre end end where the camera just pans around from the TV round to her and then on it's like, okay. So a critic on, 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 on uh, Rodden Tomato said, led by Frankie Carrillo's tremendous performance, and I will pay that. She yep. is a wonderful young actor, and I think Paul Mescal was very good in this as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is weird. Like, I'm, I'm here, I'm really sticking the boots in this film. I didn't like it, mm. but I think the performances were excellent. Mm. Um, <laughs> I think the, fo- the fault here lies with a writer and director. Um, yep. Those two actors you will see in other stuff, I would imagine, and and Paul Mescal we, was nominated for an Oscar for this and well-deserved in some ways despite the fact I didn't like it. Um, After Sun definitely ushers audiences to the intersection between our memories of loved ones and who they really are. That is an interesting synopsis for a film. Uh, The audience says you'll need to settle in for a movie that's on the slower and subtler side, and After Sun does a brilliant job of portraying depression, and Frankie Correa was great. Again, Frankie Correa, no problem with her. I don't know if it did a great job to portraying depression. At points in time, I think I could see what it was going for with that, and I liked I think I think you and I are two people who have had, you know, our, our encounters with mental illness in the past. Hmm. And I, I I think we like to try and be advocates for, for especially for men with mental illnesses. It's not Absolutely. something that traditionally men do well. We don't talk about it, yeah. right? Like yeah. <laughs> we, we go we go drinking or we do something else that's stupid. Um yeah. <laughs> and and so, you know, um if you want to see men drinking and, and doing something stupid. Just go back to watch me in our 2020 episodes. Uh, I was, it was a, it was basically a public service announcement. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know that it really, I got a whole sense of that. I just kind of got sense of a regular single dad on a holiday in Spain who was, had a couple of bad nights. Initially, I, I first got the feeling that, this was um, almost a chronicle of um, young Sophie being traumatized by being on the last holiday with her dad and her dad committed suicide on the holiday. But then fairly quickly into the movie, the relationship and the genuine feeling of affection and love and care between the two, I realized, no, he wouldn't do that to her. So my thought ended up being, okay, maybe this is him doing it, working everything through to give her the best last memories before he went away and died privately 
the last thing that she, the last memory she has of her father of this lovely holiday where they had a great time. But then the sequences that we are witness, we bear witness to suggest him not doing well with that, which maybe that's the point, but it doesn't quite go there. And then there was a sequence where he pushes her to get involved in water polo and we never see him. We just, it, the camera just focuses on her kind of being left out while all these 30, like 25 to 35 year old guys play around her. And so it made me think, okay, maybe he's not depressed in the, like the grandiose sense of the word, but maybe he's just mourning the loss of his late twenties and early thirties, where he suddenly found himself being a father when he, that wasn't his plan. But then there was a conversation on the boat about him sort of like being surprised that he made it to 30 and he doesn't see himself making it to 40. So it's like, okay, I, I don't think I'm keeping up with this. Sorry. And the thing is, I didn't want to keep up with it. I wasn't interested. Yeah. I, I didn't get enough. It wasn't enough meat on the bone for me to actually say, I know what's going on and I'm invested in these characters because there was a couple of randos on holiday. Um, yeah. I, I'm sorry, After Sun fans. I'm sorry, Mick Academy. I'm sorry, Charlotte Wells. Um, it doesn't really matter what two randos in Australia think, I'm sure. But, like, <laughs> I really, really glad that uh, I waited to see this at home and I didn't waste my money on it at the cinema because this uh, this is not a film I would – not a film I could recommend. Look, if you really like – look, 96% Rotten Tomatoes, 81 audience score – there's a, I guess the numbers say that you're probably likely to disagree with us, but um, you tune in for our opinions, not Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and that's a no from me in this one. On the flip side, we have now recorded conversation about it with two random people in Australia, and now they've got After Sun 2 content. Mm. <laughs> After, After, you can file it with Donnie Darko too, right? You know, mm. just like... 25 years, Sophie finally invents a time machine and goes back in, I don't know, um, finally beats that kid at the racing game. <laughs> it was a hard watch. But yeah. should we move on to something I hopefully think you found an easier watch? Definitely. And that is Jordan, uh, uh, Jordan Peele's latest project from last year, Nope. Nope. Now, the first thing that I'd like to say about Nope is Daniel Kaluuya. Jordan Peele brings something extra out of that guy every single time. Daniel Kaluuya is a great actor, regardless. But every time he is in, I see him in a Jordan Peele movie, there's just something fresh that he is just exploring within the character that he is. Maybe it's just the, 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 the showing the intelligence and the skill of a writer that Jordan Peele is, that he just offers up such a great, great opportunity to, to Daniel. I don't know, but every single person in this, like Stephen Ewan, he's making a, a name for himself beyond his voice work now. And the, the, the first episode of beef that I saw, he's, he's a solid actor as well. Really strong. But how does Daniel do it? How do, how, how, how do they do it? And it, it's, it's wonderful to watch, especially considering the character of OJ in this. 
is bizarre, is so stoic. I think maybe like you think about Christoph Waltz, right? He works so well with Quentin Tarantino. Like you can <laughs> obviously tell that they love working together. Mm. Um, and like I mean, don't be wrong. He's done decent work outside of his films of Quentin mm. Tarantino, but the stuff he does with Quentin just blows away with stuff that he does done with anybody else. Like that yeah. crappy Bond film, you know, um, the the film we watched a while ago, but oh yeah. Um... Uh, whatever it was i don't know but you watched a bit of a consultant um you yeah. know it, it's just some people some actors and directors just work together you know and yeah. they just click a little bit like johnny depp and tim burton did once upon a time before johnny you know um yeah. lots of shots caring turn into a piece of shit he beats women um maybe he was always that piece of shit i don't know um but you know there's some people just work better with certain actors Mm -hmm. um and so daniel seems to be just uh, yeah. uh jordan's muse um yeah. he's he's just a fantastic actor. i really liked him in black panther um yeah. i thought he was fantastic in black judas um uh, uh the judas and the black messiah um came out a couple of years ago as well which i think he got an oscar for that if i'm not mistaken or at least he got nominated um mm -hmm. he's a really fantastic up and coming actor he did win an oscar for that yeah um yeah. so and like i think he was fantastic in the black mirror episode he did which is where i first yeah him. yeah Fifth, that was my first um, um, introduction to him too 15 million merits i think it was um so you're yeah. right it, 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 jordan jordan i think might be the most interesting director working today i say interesting i think the best director working today arguably is denny villeneuve um he yeah, I, I didn't like june that much but geez he did a good job with it mm -hmm. um you know and i've obviously yeah i love quentin tarantino we know that but like maybe his best works behind him now same mm -hmm. with martin scorsese mm -hmm. chris nolan jury's out on chris after tenant so you know uh i think it's denny Villeneuve, but i think jordan peele might be the most interesting because like mm -hmm. us i really fucking liked us like everyone like get out and i think us divided people and i think nope divides people as well um i like the fact that he's jordan peele has come out of kind of comedy background the people just I, I don't think anyone was looking at jordan peele and thinking oh yeah he's going to be one of the most reliable consistently high performing directors of the 2020s or of the, the from 2000 onwards um and he's going to be sampling in different environments like you get those people who do come out and they they make a great debut movie and they get that kind of they get that stink on them and they have to do that similar thing again and again and again it's what happened with him like Shyamalan for for much of his early career in particular um he there's there's a lot of similes between m night and uh jordan peele in that he was m night was kind of jumping from different genres different genres you know the sixth sense the unbreakable and things nice. like that. yeah and jordan's doing the same kind of thing but he's bringing in a lot more social commentary as well which is really nice to have in a movie 
because it's not just about that social comedy. He's using it to inform it in a way that George A. Romero did with the original Dawn of the Dead. This is a lot of stuff. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of George Romero, but I'm going to go out and limb here and say I think Jordan Peele might be a better filmmaker. Um, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> it certainly helps that he's got more money behind him than, than, than George Romero ever did. Yes. Um, you're right. This is his book. I mean, I guess all three are based or sit comfortably, I guess, in what would you largely be called the horror genre in one way, shape, or form. Maybe sci fi horror in no, horror, but I think it's got. Fence. I, I think if what's interesting is you look at a film like After Sun and it had an 81 audience score. This has a 69 on Rotten Tomatoes. And if we look at and if we look at um at IMDB, it has a 6.8 rating on IMDB and a 77 meta score. I, what I love about Jordan Peele is he is unafraid. Yeah. I'll actually make look, and this is maybe the opposite of the flip side of what in respect to Charlotte Wells about Artisan. She was doing something that was a little bit out of the norm in the sense making a film without a story. She didn't pull it off, but I'll say respect to her for trying. I'm saying I'm assuming her pronouns are her. I don't know. Um, but I think that Jordan Peele does something similar and he tries to do something that's really quite radically different to a standard Hollywood horror film. These are not your Blumhouse horror films. This, they could be made by Blumhouse. I don't know. Um, they are not. <laughs> but you know you're not getting Megan here, which I thought was a fine film as well. But they are by Blumhouse are just generally by the numbers. Um, the, Jordan does stuff that is a bit different, and you called it. He's got a social commentary angle in there, uh -huh. but he's it's it works on a lot of different layers, uh -huh. and they can and they they support repeat viewings. It's the second time I've seen Nope. Uh -huh. So people who are regular listeners. The yep. first question is why, really. But the second, the second <laughs> point to miracles. Make, the second point to make there is you might have heard me talking about this. I think last year or earlier yep. this year. I kind of what do I mean last year? I think. So um, we won't go over too much ground because I think I really like this. Um, the residents of a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. That is an understatement. Um, after random objects falling from the sky result in the death of their father. Ranch owners' siblings, ranch owning siblings OJ and Emerald Haywood, attempt to capture video evidence of an unidentified flying object with the help of tech salesman Angel Torres and documentarian Atlas Holst. Uh, I'd like to call out Atlas Holst just for a start here. Played in a very rare appearance by the inimitable Michael Wincott, and he's fucking great in this. By the way, uh, for those who don't know who that is, he was. The bad guy in the crow i think he was the guy who shot brennan lee actually but you know don't quote me on that um he was in robin hood prince of thieves this guy gisborne going back 30 years now I'm like why an axe because why a spoon not an axe um he was in strange days which i think we had as the film a yeah. chain film a while ago as well yeah. he has that that guy that incredibly gravelly voice yeah um and he doesn't pop up much anymore i'm I think actually shooting friendly kind of setting back a bit, but he's fantastic in this. Mm. But aside from me saying Atlas Holst is Michael Wincott's as Atlas Holst is fantastic. Yeah. What do you make of this? I love the originality of this. There was, I, I kind of got that this, this was the first of um, 
Jordan Peele's movies where I got that feel of Shyamalanism coming through because of one simple fact. The creature reveal was so much in line with, there's that sequence in Signs where um, there's, that, there's that children's party and someone's got a found footage video camera and um, it's like, ah, oh, there's something from behind. And you suddenly just see the creature move and it's just a very androgynous, creepy looking, neutral grade creature. And it's like, oh my God. And that's, it was so simple and so small and you're rewinding and you, you're following Joaquin Phoenix as he's rewinding it and looking and wanting to see a cloud, a goddamn cloud. It's so, it's so brilliant as an idea. And then when you suddenly, like when um, uh, Brandon Perot as Angel Therese just says, tell me when you see it. It's like, okay, okay, what is it? And you're kind of looking everywhere to see if you can see a, a, a spaceship moving or some, just suddenly appearing or the, the tree line moving or something like that. And then you suddenly realize the cloud's not moving. Simple, brilliant, wonderful. And then, I don't know if we want to go into spoilers. Do we want to? Go, should we do spoilers? It's, it's been out for almost a year now. Put the warning it's on up. All the, all the streaming. So I'll put the spoilers thing up for people who care. But spoilers: three, two, one. It's just a creature. It's not a ship. It's it's a fucking creature. That's awesome. That's that's different. And and the the logic of the things the keys and the coins that fall out of it it's just waste because it's just digested everything else that's brilliant the noise everything about it it just informs and narrates and directs the story in such a brilliant way it weaves its way through it has its own logic in the world that just works it's great um Again, and this film works on layers. There's all sorts of levels. You could just watch this as a as a monster film, and yeah. it works fine. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some stuff going on beneath the surface here about spectacle. Um, mm -hmm. Jordan Peele's talked extensively about how he wanted to make a film about spectacle and the whole idea of everyone trying to capture this thing on film so they can sell it. Yeah. Um, which I and then you juxtapose that against the. Um, the, the sort of a sub story between uh, Stephen Yen and the chimp. Um, yeah. uh, and I think there's something to be said in here about the exploitation of, of animals for entertainment, but I think mm -hmm. possibly also pop culture's exploitation, you know, of, of African-American people and stuff like that through the, you know, constantly reference back to, you know, one of the first moving images ever recorded was a, a, a an African-American man riding a horse who was, their great great grandfather or something like that and yeah. juxtapose that to the end of the film where oj again is riding the horse like you know much like um the the uh the black jockey at the start in the earlier mentioned in the film um it supports repeat viewings and you go through and you notice those things um and it really shines a light on some interesting interesting stuff that nobody else is talking about yeah and I gotta gotta salute Jordan Peele for this. I I liked Get Out. I thought it was really really cool um, as as a fresh new voice coming into the writer director space. 
I wasn't too into us. I thought it was a bit messy storytelling, but this really hit me. Obviously, I any long-term listeners, I love my sci-fi. I love thrillers. This plays into my wheelhouse so much more just on a base level than anything else that he's done so far. But it just works really well. It really does. It just it gets me in such a wonderful way. Um is it Dennis Haysbert? No, no, Keith David plays Otis Senior. And in the very, very short little cameo that he has at the beginning, he's great. He's he's another one of voices. He's got a very recognizable voice. Because he voices the president in Rick and Morty. Yeah. And I think it was, I think he voiced the, the leader of the gargoyles in the 90s Disney cartoon thing as well. If you don't know who Keith David is, who, what the fuck are you be doing? Yeah. Uh, he was Frank in They Live in the, one of the most famous fight scenes of all time with Roddy Piper. Of mm. course, he was Childs in arguably the greatest film ever made, The Thing. Um, if you only know him from Rick and Morty, do go back and check them out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, everyone is great. Even I wasn't sure to start with about uh, Kiki Palmer um, as Emerald, the sister. I was a little worried that I was going to get annoyed with her character. But it just subtly shifts and turns and she and it becomes more of you learn more about her as, as you go. And it informs on the story, and the story informs on her. And it, it balanced it really, really well. I was very, very impressed with that. I, I think this is, I, I would love to call it a masterpiece, but I, I think this might be his best film yet. I liked Get Out is probably a more accessible story than Nope. Um, nope is, you, you, you've made an interesting observation calling it Shyamalan-esque in the sense it it does do some of the same things that Shyamalan does where it's kind of the less successful Shyamalan films where mm. it's trying to misdirect you. Think of something like The Village where it's trying to misdirect you towards thinking it's a, a monster in the woods film when it's, it's not at oh, all. Yeah. Um, and that was a really crap film as a result of that really weird, you know, change it just made about two-thirds of the way through, whereas Jordan Peterson pulls it off spectacularly well here. Um, I think you could classify this as a horror film, horror sci-fi. Um, he's a the master. Fact that it rains blood. Yeah, that usually is usually an instant qualifier for horror. And what happens to the cast of the TV show? Uh, the dupes on as a child, mm -hmm. a dupe played by Stephen Yen. Mm -hmm. I think a horror mystery sci-fi thriller, according to IMDb. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to keep it suitably vague because. Mm -hmm. I want people to be able to enjoy this themselves. But other than to say that I think there's all sorts of different subtext going on here. I think you can watch it multiple times and only pick things up the fifth time you've seen it. Mm -hmm. And all this, all the while, just enjoying a, a cracking story at the same time. Yeah. Um, I can't recommend this highly enough to people. And this is what I want in more of in cinema. I want people making shit like this. I want less... As much as I'm looking forward to The Flash, as much as I'm looking forward to Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3, this mm -hmm. is more of what I want to see people making, really taking chances, doing something original. Exactly. Absolutely agree with you, 100%. Um, 
yeah, everyone's firing on all cylinders. It looks awesome. It sounds great. The sound design is brilliant. Um, and, you know, it's been bandied around for a while now that uh, Jordan Peele was a name that was going to do the Akira movie. It was great that he got the Akira motorbike slide in there at the end. It was, it was a cool little nod. I would love to see what... I can't wait to see what Jordan does next. For one thing, I'm I'm there, ready and waiting. Um, I don't honestly. I don't know if I would want him to take on a pre-existing property where he's beholden to someone else's rules, because he's very good at setting up rules for his world in this movie and going boom. This is what I'm playing with, and I'm going to deliver what I want to do. He must be knocking back some big offers from the studios for different Marvel film or a Star Wars film. It's probably his turn for a Star Wars film. I think it's your turn next month. Uh, yes, your dad's up in December. I think your brother comes in next June with his yep. particular trilogy. I would love to see a Terranverse trilogy. Uh, having knowing a little bit about what kind of films your brother makes, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> um. So, uh, but interesting, we were talking about um, uh, John Carpenter. After mm. seeing this film, a fan on Twitter proclaimed Jordan Peele the greatest horror director of all time. Peele responded, I love your enthusiasm, but I will just not tolerate any John Carpenter slander. <laughs> uh, and he has great taste as well. Yes. The funny thing is, the guy, as he said at the start, does comedy really fucking well. Like, yeah. he's, he's, um, Key and Peel show was fantastic, but he hasn't done a comedy. No, no, he hasn't. He's he's using he's using horrific scenes to tell very compelling stories. I would kind of be interested to see what he would do in the animated space. Like some of their sketches on the show would make funny movies, and in a different time, or a different person would have probably pitched. You know, movie length versions of those sketches, a little bit like the, um, you know, famously Saturday Night sketches get turned into. Yeah. Yeah. Wayne's World was a sketch, or um, the Blues Brothers was a sketch. Uh, Night at Roxbury was a SNL sketch. Coneheads, you know. Um, You know, there's uh, a fantastic one where there are two African American guys uh, shooting aliens or zombies or something in the street, which were really funny, sort of uh, racial overtone to it. Um, and that would have been a fun, you can see some, someone pitching a story like that, but it's just so brave and and fucking cool that he just hasn't, he's resisted that temptation to go off and make significantly more interesting shit. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm with you. I I steer clear of a fucking, you know, existing property stuff, unless you need a payday. Yeah. Um, and existing property stuff hasn't been the best part. Like his Twilight Zone series was kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I didn't see it, but I heard the Candyman remake was kind of crap. Uh, yeah, I watched that and it was a huge mess, a huge mess. It was so painfully vanilla. It wasn't particularly scary. It wasn't really doing anything with a social thing. It was very much trying and banging a drum going, look at this, look at this, look at this, but it actually amounted to nothing. Um, yeah, if it, I, Maybe he could take the Guillermo del Toro route of one for myself, one for the studio. But when, as an audience member, when he's serving up this delicious meal 
every single time three out of three why why would you say oh can you know what can you add mayo to that no you trust the chef <laughs> good call yeah so i think that's two massive thumbs up for this film and i think a, a fine suggestion on your behalf to to check it out yeah should we move on to binge browse burn burn yes burn. Let's, let's do it uh brought to you by national tiles australia's favorite tile store uh, not, not <laughs> really use no discount at checkout for a zero percent discount at checkout tell them george sent you um, <laughs> <laughs> um uh, i would like to start with one you mentioned earlier and i hope you've had a chance to have a look at it i gave a quick um mm. uh, preview of it a few weeks ago when we did talked about this mm-hmm. i ha- i would like to come back to and talk about beef Mm-hmm. Um, this is the latest Netflix series starring Stephen Yen and Ali Wong, yep. two yep. people that have road raging since borrow into their minds and slowly consume every thought and action. I have now mm-hmm. finished the season. There are 10 episodes. Have you seen any of it or all of it? I have seen the first two and I'm just looking for time. This is not, I, this is not a, a series that you should binge. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a um, fan series, but it's hard watching in some regards. Funny enough, not only would I rate it a binge, <laughs> I did binge. Um, we Ooh. watched episode after episode. This show is the best thing I've seen on television for years. Best mm-hmm. new thing I'll say I've seen on television for years. Mm-hmm. This is outstanding television. Mm-hmm. Brilliant writing, brilliantly acted. Uh, beautifully shot and put together. Where is, this is as close to perfection as I've seen on Netflix or anywhere else for a long, long time. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, mm-hmm. As you sort of the synopsis there said at the start of episode one, no spoilers here. It's the first five minutes. Uh, Stephen Yen is returning a bunch of hibachi grills and a carbon monoxide detector to like a Bunnings type store. What, uh, what, what do you use something like that for, Travis? Obviously, barbecuing large amounts of meat uh, whilst remaining safe inside and not uh, poisoning yourself with carbon monoxide gas. Um, He's trying to kill himself. Um, But whilst trying to reverse out of his cracking space at the the hardware store, he is cut off by a white Mercedes um, SUV. Mm -hmm. And uh, he honks at them. They flip the bird at him. And it turns into a chase through the neighborhood mm-hmm. for no particular reason, just pure bloody mindedness. Yep. And this sets up this road rage incident destroys both um, both of the lives of the drivers involved in this. Those being Danny, Danny played by Stephen Yen, and Amy, played by Ali Wong. Danny is a contractor, uh, a lowly contractor. Amy Lau owns a plant store or something. It's been bought by. A big company in the process of being bought by a big company. She's married to uh, an artist who's not living up to his dad's uh, artistic standards, his late father's artistic standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny lives with his brother um, and who is lost and is involved with his criminal cousin, uh, Isaac, played by David Cho. And they just weave this horrible web making bad decision after bad decision, after bad decision. And just when you think they're about to break out of this horrible cycle of revenge and upon revenge, they get sucked back into it. 
mm-hmm. to the point where by the end of the the end of a season some shocking things have taken place in the name of this feud that started so simply over a car park incident mm. that it's if you track it back to something where it started like that is ridiculous where it ends up and the final episode i'm not going to spoil it for you initially i thought it was maybe a little bit too it was it was really took it down a number of notches that's the pace of a show and i thought maybe it slowed it down and got a little bit too esoteric but upon reflecting upon it for a day or so it's one of those shows that really stays with you in your head mm-hmm. um i i just thought no actually i was wrong the, the the last episode is is perfect so not only is the show brilliant and compelling and i have to know what happens next um <laughs> The way they tie a bow around it, it 100% sticks to the landing. This and Severance, uh, two of the greatest shows I think we've seen pop up in recent times. And I am a bit jelly. You get to watch the next episodes for the first time because you have got a treat coming for you. Yeah. And again, what great TV and movie, what great artistic work is coming out of the Asian-American community. I'll say it again. So much good stuff coming out of them. Yeah, and that's that's the other thing of this is it's 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 just so heavily led by people who don't look like me and you. It's great. It's really wonderful to see variety and see these absolutely incredible stories coming from it as well. I yeah, I'll, it's if you haven't got onto this, you mm. do yourself a favor, check it out. If you're not sure about it, Please take a risk on our recommendation. It's fantastic. This, I like I said, I've only watched the first two episodes, but it is phenomenal. Uh, Stephen Yen and Ali Wong are absolutely incredible in their roles. It is everything about it is fantastic. It is. I find it. I I wouldn't say that it's binge in that. I just want to keep on more. I have been slowly going through it because. Episode one, I was like, okay, I need to digest this. I want to digest this. And then I'll move on. And it's, um, I think you're right. It can be, can be, it can be a bit much. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot going on in each story. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, good. What else? Uh, the other one I would like to go, this one's a real throwback, but I've only just really come across it in recent times. And this is one you'll find in Australia on the Hinge uh, service. Oh, yes. Which is why it's quite ironic, but I would also call it a binge-worthy show. And that show is Difficult People. Um, and I am, it's a real throwback here because this is a three-season TV show that has not been on the air now <laughs> since... Uh, 2017. Um, but that's the world we live in these days, right? Sometimes you pick up these old shows that somehow got cancelled way too soon, and you're like, ah, why did they cancel? However, only three seasons. Julie and Billy, two jaded aspiring comedians who live together in New York City, navigate through their 30s while dealing with their individual careers and personal relationships. Uh, stars, uh, created by Julie Klausner or Klausner. Starring Julie Klausner and Billy Eichner, of course, is a bit of a star now. He was in Bros, which was um, a bit of a big release uh, last year. Uh, lots and lots of cameos throughout the life of a season, the show as well. 
The other famous name here people might recognize is uh, Gabourey Sidibe. Uh, she, of course, who was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Precious going back. Uh, oh, yeah. A number of years now. It's one that's not. Um, Lucy Liu pops up from time to time. Fred Armisen, John Cho, Amy Sedaris. It was, it's it's a, a lots and lots and lots of different cameos. Even our link in the chain this week, um, John Turturro, was in an episode yeah. once. And this show is about horrible people. But the kind of horrible people you wish you were friends with. Um <laughs> So Billy Eichner plays Billy Eichner, you know, his standard sort of role of a very cynical uh, gay man who hates the gay community. So you can kind of see uh, very clearly how the, the Billy Epstein character evolved into the character he played in Bros. It's not a giant leap. Okay. He and Julie, uh, play, Julie Kessler, played by Julie Klausner, uh, are best friends. And they basically spend all of their time together being horrible and cynical about the world around them. Um, despite the fact Julie is straight, she is in a relationship with uh, her boyfriend, Arthur, played by James Urbaniak, uh, who you've probably never heard of, um, but he's uh, quite good in this as very much a, why don't you put him, you know, I don't like to use the word cuck. <laughs> but that's kind of who he is here. He's basically a a a, a, a you know a doormat that, that Julie walks all over. He's constantly cooking her dinner, making okay. things, looking after her, doing things for her. Well, she barely acknowledges his existence. Um, and probably the highlight uh, of their relationship are the various multitude of pet names that he uses for Julie's, including. Noodles, lava lamp, mouse pad, candles, splendor, pushpin, lozenge, spinach, rubber mat, Vitamix, kudush cup, time stamp, pollen count, wiffle bat, water bug, tap shoe, pen cap, string cheese, duct tape, eyeshadow palette, paint chip, <coughs> Kleenex, loophole, Blu-ray, bank holiday, extended release, act break, red band trailer, pumpkin seed, signature cocktail, rental agreement, scene partner, dry run, loose change, credit sequence, farm to table, Terms of Service, Bank Pen, Snapple Facts, Cinnamon Challenge, Bottle Episode. Um, it's really a kind of one of the more fun running gags in the show. Um, it's also filthy. So this is definitely not for children. And um, it's not afraid to sort of lean into that, its sort of filthiness. Um, I, I enjoy this immensely because it's a, like a – a Seinfeld that's had the brakes taken off it. All right. All right. That's, so that's, that's if, if you like it. Billy Eichner's, if you like Billy's comedy, if you like bros, I think he yeah. had a Netflix a YouTube show for a while. Um, okay. So if you like that kind of thing, I think you're going to dig this. As I said, in Australia, it's available on binge. I think in the U S it was on Hulu. Okay. All right. Well, the one that I would like to talk about on the end is one that you've already mentioned on a binge browse burn, which is White Lotus. Is this season one or two? Season one. That's a weird show. And yes, it's really I haven't weird. seen season one. Yeah, it's really weird watching that show 
in the same week that I was watching After Sun as well, because in my brain I was having weird cognitive dissonance and mixing up which resort people were at. <laughs> so I kept on, it's like I was trying to think back on it and going, wait, wait, when did Jennifer Coolidge talk with the Scottish accent guy? Wait, no, no, different, two different things. That's all right. It's a, it's a really odd show. And I, Jennifer Coolidge is doing some interesting things in it, and she's she's a, she always has some interesting performances, and I can understand why a lot of people really like and have been applauding her for what she's been doing in White Lotus. But at the same time, in many ways, it seems to be um, a holiday park variation of beef where all the characters are just permanently making the wrong decisions but it's not as successful as beef and the performances fluctuate quite a lot so i don't like it i don't how like many, it. how many episodes in did you get uh i've watched two and a bit two and a bit Look, if we're, if, we, if, we're if we're yeah. to take the um the imdb ratings is anything to go by it gets better from here yeah it seems like it was like the the first episode seems to try, just generally be setting up okay this is where everything happens and this is a brief introduction to some of the characters and then that episode two you start to learn a little bit more about the characters and a little bit more about maybe what season one is about but at the same time it's like mm, i don't know if i really care <laughs> i thought the second season was largely overrated while the conclusion was fun uh -huh. um you kind of needed to, to really write out quite a bit of you know soap opera-ish drama yeah to, to get to that point it seemed like a soap opera with an attitude yeah I'm trying and, to do hard comedy as well. Like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna make make we, we want you to laugh about this or that. And it's like, mm, nah, not gonna laugh about it. Sorry. <laughs> yes, um, I I I have well, look, not having watched season one, I can't comment about it directly, other than to say that season two, which most people agreed was better, mm -hmm. still didn't grab me. It just yeah. um. It, it felt a little bit, though, I said, too soap opera-esque for me. Um, there's going to be a season three. Apparently, it's going to be set in Thailand. Okay. And, yes, so we'll see what happens yeah. with that because people really like this show. Apparently so. And I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of season two in case you decide to give that a go. It's revealed that they're all made of Lego. They're all actually characters in a show written by Damon Limeloff. It goes nowhere. Because I'd like to quickly mention season two of Yellow Jackets. Oh, no. I am putting this in the browse category for now, and it's okay. it's starting to push its way down towards the burn category because uh, it has given uh, me serious, serious lost vibes. I don't know. Did you ever get into Lost? Um. Yeah. Yeah, for the first two seasons and then it's like okay do i that's what everybody to? says everybody's like the first season this is sick i don't know what goes on and then you're like season two is like 
Okay. You going somewhere with this? You going some? Oh, you're not going anywhere with this, are you? You've got no idea what's going you, on. Yeah. You don't even know where this is going. You've got a magic and eight ball. And then you're like, okay, I'm out. So that's what uh, this is what Yellow Jackets is doing for me. It looks not quite there yet. Okay. But it's pushing the envelope a little bit to go. Where's all sorts of mysterious supernatural goings on? In uh, I, I assume people know what Yellow Jackets are about because I've spoken about it before. If you don't, you can use it. Yeah. Um, it's getting a real supernatural angle on the second season, and I find that very irritating. And it just sort of feels like, aha, well, you know, we're going to solve mystery one, but we're going to introduce two new mysteries. And then, mm-hmm. you know, that was exactly what Lost did for like the last five seasons. Like, we're never actually going to tell you what goes on. You're going to ask, so what's to the end? You go, you well, I may as well just wait until you finish it and watch the last episode, then, right? Or just watch a YouTube yeah. synopsis that tells me what the fuck happened. Like, um, it's it's getting it's a shame because the performance is still solid, but it's annoying. Yeah. So, uh, I can't recommend Yellow Jacket season two right now. Okay, oh well, it's a shame, but never mind. I think that'll bring it to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. Just under the one one thirty, as we generally try to promise. But thank you very much for joining us this week. We were talking about the chain movie of the week, Monkey Bone, from 20, 2001. Um, we have got next week's chain movie is going to be Do the Right Thing, care of Travis Croft choosing that one. We talked about After Sun and Nope as our other two movies of the week. And binge brows burn. We just you just heard Travis talking about Yellow Jacket. I was talking about White Lotus. We talked about beef and um, difficult people. Difficult people. Thank you. Yes. So next week, um, my I think that it might be a little too early for us to be able to talk about uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I think that comes up with fourth, so it might fall a little bit. Um, on the wrong day for us to, yeah, I think it comes out on Thursday over here in Australia, but um, that'll be on the horizon some point soon, no doubt. And we'll have a whole host of new things to talk about. One of the things that I am going to request as a movie for us to watch is the new Apple TV movie, um, Anna de Ar- Ar- Anna de Aramis and um, Chris. Chris Evans, that's the one. I was trying to remember which Evans in Ghosted, which looks like it could be forgettable fun. <laughs> okay, well, um, we'll see if we can find out for next week. Otherwise, we'll have a host of new cinematic goodies to talk about, hopefully. Indeed. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Good night. Good night. Bye, my book.